there's no better course. So, and cross country skiing is meant to be hard. Uh, really fun racing. Hi, I'm Rosie Frankowski from AP. See, here we have with the hero Bjorn Daly. That's the great thing about sport. Make it rain. Make make it rain. You play to win. It is. I mean, that's that's our sport. So, toughen up, train harder, and get in that pack and make it rain. Make it rain. Make it make it rain. First of all, make it rain. Make it rain. You see, the critic of air must use air to make a case against air. The fact that he's able to make an argument at all proves that he's wrong. And uh, and from that, I, it's sort of up to me to, to pick the ones that I really like, which is, can't be super hard. Uh, yeah, I'm sure you have experience with testing two very nice pairs of skis. You know that they feel exactly the same. On the back stretch, it is Mellon and Richardson. During the race, she heard me. I'm very flattered about that. <laughs> you are skiing very wise. You know, we're gonna have to work hard. We're gonna have to, we're gonna have to train hard. But you know, this, this group has got a has got an already work ethic. You know, so that's not gonna be the problem. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cedar Skier Podcast, the fastest-growing Nordic ski-specific podcast in all of Lake County. And today we are so lucky to have Alaskan Tyler Cornfield, a 2018 Olympian, U.S. National Cross-Country Ski Champion, and the first American full-time ski classics athlete. After missing qualification for the 2022 Olympics, Cornfield, the boyfriend of Rosie Brennan, decided to go all-in on the double-pole marathon scene and since that's something, you know, we've been clamoring for since the beginning of the show, it's only, and volunteering for, I should add, it's only fitting to have Cornfield on and explain to us what it's like to live the dream. Actually, we peppered it with some questions about how he made the career move and how he's been training to prepare for the 2022-2023 Grip Wax Free season. Enjoy. Yeah, well, hey, where am I? Where am I catching right now? Were you guys in Park City, like just training with everyone else, or where are you at right now? Yeah, um, we are in Park City. Uh, camp finished up. The races were yesterday, um, and yeah, we're gonna take a week of rest. Uh, maybe go to the desert a little bit, and then get back into the swing of things back in Anchorage. Do you do like mountain biking and stuff? as well you know like would you say get out to the dirt is that kind of what you're gonna do <laughs> uh yeah um we definitely mountain bike granted we're not great at it um or i'm not great at it uh yeah. and i i i say that because it must be the bike um you know i if i if i got a new bike then things would change but no um i i, I love mountain biking but um we go to the desert to mountain bike and we don't, I don't, I don't mountain bike too much for training in Alaska. Um, yeah. Mostly because my, my mountain bike's down here, but uh, when I'm down here, it's kind of like a little treat. Well, um, you know, I think I, and I sent you the message before, like I got a, an email from actually a listener on my podcast. Like you should talk to Tyler Cornfield because you know, he's the kind of the first American to go all in on the ski classics. And in my head, I was like, yes, 
he got to it before I could. I, I'm just like, you know, a wannabe <laughs> citizens racer. But I was like, I'm, I I always, every year, will send out like emails to Wiesmanski Classics teams. Like, here's my resume. I won the alley loop. You should consider <laughs> me. You know, yeah, it's just a joke. But I was like, well, yeah, we got to talk to him because I think it's a really interesting storyline, especially at the point of your career at. Um, and so that's kind of the focus, but even before that, you know, I had that first question kind of giving us the spark notes version of where you've been, where you're headed now for those who aren't as familiar with you and your career. Yeah. So I am from Alaska originally, uh, born and raised, and I've been training there and skiing there my whole life. Uh, originally I was with winter stars, last winter stars, which is the same team Gus Schumacher is currently on and then after college I went to UAF in Fairbanks and after college I uh, chose to go to APU um, which was you know it's always complicated with uh, inner um, inner city competition but it was a good I had a really solid group of guys and really progressed um, and it's what I needed at that point in my career but as far as uh, results um, I don't know if yeah, the average listener has been paying attention to our sport for um, as long as my career. But um, I kind of came onto the scene pretty hot when I was 19 or uh, 18. I won the classic sprint at U.S. Nationals in Anchorage and my freshman year in college. And that was kind of when I I always, um, you know, I there was never a moment that... Hmm, I didn't want to be the best skier in the world. Like I grew up, you know, with the full expectation that I was going to be the best skier in the world. And I thought I was doing my best to train like it. And that was my first um, kind of <clears throat> result that indicated like, okay, I think I can, I think I can do this. I think I can do this now. Um, I then won two years later, another classic sprint at us nationals and then kind of fell off, um, my senior year of college, uh, motivation didn't line up and just couldn't, um, couldn't get things to work. So, uh, my transition, I always knew I wanted to ski professionally and it just, uh, so happened that a bunch of really solid guys were joining APU and I followed them and, uh, we worked really hard and, um, we, we didn't meet all of our goals, but Eventually, uh, I made 2018 Olympics and raced the 50K and the 15K there. And then I tried to make this year's Olympics this past year in Beijing. Uh, unfortunately, I our second weekend in cable, I tore a ligament in my thumb. So that kind of derailed the season. Um, but still still raced through it. Uh, I ended up getting um, fourth at in the classic sprint at nationals, uh, which I was really proud about with the torn ligament. And I used a splint to allow me to keep skiing and race through the rest of the season. Um, didn't get eye popping results, but just being able to make it through was important. And then I got surgery in, uh, the end of March. I, I was kind of following more for my own job at the Vail daily, like the drama of making the Olympic teams for like mogul skiers and stuff like that. So as a Nordic ski fan, I was obviously kind of involved there too, but I, I don't think I was as aware of like, wow, here's a guy who was a 2018 Olympian. He just happened to have a really unfortunate injury. And because of that, like really kind of, you know, threw you out of the 2022 Olympics. I mean, was that kind of, I don't know, do you look back kind of with some spite there at all? Or is it kind of, it's all for the best. This is what I'm I've gotten moving forward, you know? I think that I'm in a lucky position to have made the 2018 Olympics. Uh, so the pressure, I certainly had plenty of pressure on myself, but I didn't have the same expectations that maybe I had post 2018 Olympics. Um, sure. After those 2018 Olympics, I really, you know, I was like, I, like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to make it. And um, I kind of just plateaued. And so leading into these, I, I trained really well. I had, you know, I, I won the first race of the season when I broke my, or I tore my ligament. Um, I was leading the super tour, which I, um, I, I never had results that good that early. So I was really happy about that. And I'm at an age when 
I was able to absorb it, um, absorb the, it was obviously frustrating and um, a, a shock to, I've never had an injury, significant injury like that. I've never had surgery, but at the same time, you know, I've grown to appreciate that there's ups and downs. Um, just the fact that I was able to make it work, you know, I could have gotten, I made the choice to not get surgery right away and try to continue towards making the Olympics. And um, yeah, I, I, I can be really proud about that. And I was, so I, I didn't really overthink it. I just was like, I, this is, this is what it is and just keep moving. Uh, and I, I want to, I also kind of naturally transition into talking about how you got into ski classics, but going back further, I, I put some questions there about kind of your childhood growing up. Cause you have, I think on your website that uh, your parents were active, but not so much in sports. I'm curious, like, can you describe that a little bit? What caused you to pursue skiing as a kid and at apparently a really high level too, like where you're like, you were very determined. I want to be best in the world. That's rare too, to have those aspirations. I mean, what can you say about your childhood experience and even, you know, some of the big lessons your parents did pass on, even if they weren't athletes themselves? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the biggest impact was the ski community in Anchorage. Um, I had incredible role models from a young age. Uh, Keegan, obviously, but before that, Nina Kempel and um, James Southam and a lot of great, and Lars Flora, great Olympians who were in my community that I got to see every day. Um, and then with Winter Stars, I had a really great group of guys who were around me who trained really, really hard. and They didn't all have the same like end goal as I did. Um, but we worked really, really hard and, um, yeah, I, I think that was a huge impact. Uh, I started skiing with, uh, winter stars when I was nine. So, um, winter stars, the training philosophy is, it's pretty like it's, it's, it's open. It's how much a skier wants to put in, but when a skier decides to go all in, then it's there to support you. And, um, you can kind of see that with Gus too, you know, like, uh, Jan is there to, to be with you as you progress. So, um, and then as for my parents, I mean, the biggest thing they taught me was the love of outdoors and my dad's a bush pilot or that's how it came to Alaska. Bush pilot in Alaska is, uh, someone who flies in rural Alaska. So my parents met, um, in, uh, like kind of the uh, village on the border of the Arctic circle and, that's um you know the the whole alaskan adventure of being outside and exploring and loving nature and uh we're fortunate that uh, you know the sport aligned that i get to be outside for a lot um and you better love it or else it gets yeah. pretty boring um in those you know it can be it, there can be some great days but there's some days where uh you know the weather or whatever it is can get to you and so being outside and loving nature is the biggest thing that my my parents taught me and it seems like today in our nordic community there's a lot of discussion about like the proper way of making sure youth progress through high school through college and maybe the world cup if it goes that far and i'm kind of curious now that you've sort of been through all of it and been successful what your your opinions are on what really mattered for your development either physiologically or technique or you know psychologically whatever um it, you know what what sort of two cents can you offer to that conversation of how to best improve the young people in america in nordic skiing i guess i mean i think it's important to point out that uh we've already surpassed you know where i was like the young people in america are doing amazing things um as from where I am, I'm just trying to like catch a ride and thrive off of their um, just enthusiasm to the sport and enthusiasm to, to train and work hard. Um, so I want to give credit where credit's due. Like the youth have been doing an amazing job. And um, I think it doesn't like a lot of these guys can show you it doesn't matter whether you choose to go to college or not. Um, it's totally dependent on the skier and how much drive they have and what they um, 
you know, the life balance that they, that they've chosen. And as I've gotten older, I think that's more apparent to me is like the, the life balance, um, making sure that skiing is important, but at the same time, like when I was young, you know, I played soccer, I, I ran, I swam, I did as many sports as I could. I wish I had mountain bike more because then I would be more proficient, but um you would be an injury risk that's that's what i was worried i always tell them like oh if i had mom biked early it would be such an injury risk to the rest of my sporting yeah yeah exactly <laughs> exactly but um yeah i if, if there was one thing it would be um do as many sports as you can um i know that there's always going to be the push to get focus on one thing versus the other but i think the anomalies out there that choose to do that one sport are just anomalies they're they're it's yeah. going to be hard to replicate them so um just enjoy it do as many sports as you can um if college is right for you go for it but um and then as as far as progressing from college to professional uh i believe it's i'm pretty passionate that when i, ad I give advice whether it was solicited or not to those who are seeking professional skiing is don't just do it for a year. Um, you can't learn what you need for your future. Like if, if you're this, if you're in it for like, just having fun, I mean, I'm not going to knock that, but um, if you really want to learn something, you have to go through the ups and downs. You have to learn, you know, maybe I'm going to make a world cup team or a world champs team that first year, but probably not. And learning to deal with that, that frustration and that failure is really important. And um, I think that that's been the biggest benefit of going as long as I have is I've gone through some big ups and downs and I'm, I'm, I'm confident I'm a stronger person from it. That's a really cool insight. And I feel like you and, you know, Rosie's career too exemplify the people who are patient, you, you never really know when you'll reach the pinnacle of your career. And some people it might happen when they're 21 or 22 and some people it might happen when they're 31 or 32. And, Oh, I was the Ironman world triathlon champion just like a week ago. She was a 33 year old who had, was a very elite runner, indoor track USATF champion in like the 3000 and then tons of injuries, like really didn't manifest for a whole decade and 18 months after giving birth to a, her first kid, she like won the Ironman. It's like someone posted on a thread, like how cool is it that this person reached the pinnacle of their athletic career at this stage, you know? And I think that's a message that our generation is particularly inept at being able to handle. Cause we are really like, Oh, you know, short, short term attention and kind of instant gratification. And it's interesting, but um well and and so you got you kind of walked us through to the to march and then you know we hear this announcement in the summer i think it was or whenever in the spring that you were going to go full-time visma ski classic so i'm curious like what was the genesis of that and then how did it come to fruition here in the spring and the summer that you actually decided to make that career move yeah uh i mean going back to uh 2017 is kind of when it started um which is you know five years ago it's kind of strange saying that but yeah. um leading into the world champs that year 2017 uh we were really strong that year as a men's team at apu and we did not crack the wax at u.s nationals and we just didn't have the results that we thought we could uh and david and i were kind of David Norris and I, uh, my teammate, was were trying to figure out the next steps because the super there was a super tour the next weekend, but after that there was kind of this lull, and so David was just scrolling through FIS as a skier at the FIS website as a skier does, um, looking for you know different races around the world, and I in my peripheral I paid attention to double pole racing because I thought it was um, intriguing how well they were doing against World Cup guys. I thought that there was this um, <clears throat> this uh, thing that we 
in the U.S. weren't paying attention to, like how are these double poly double double polers skiing so well against the likes of Sunbi and who was dominant at the time? Um, and so I paid attention to it, but then David was like, "Hey, we should like, what do you think about this race in Italy, the Marcia Longa?" And I was like, "I mean, sure, seventy k. That sounds." Awesome. I mean, yeah. uh, it's definitely different than what we've been doing, but uh, what is it like? When When's the race? And he's like, uh, two weeks. So we scrambled, we booked everything, booked the place, and like got got registered and all that stuff within a couple of days, and then raced the Super Tour the next weekend, and then flew to Italy with maybe three days before the race, and. Um, Yeah, <laughs> it's a bit chaotic, but we we both had a lot of fun and learned a lot. So that was kind of the the intro into the ski classics. Just you two guys, no like wax team, then you had to kind of take care of all that stuff. <clears throat> well, fortunately, we were able to uh, hook up with, with there was a, a Rosignol pro team at the time and we were we were both on Rosignol. So okay. we um, were able to hook up with them and they supported us. And I think they were a little surprised by like... David, David had a few malfunctions. I mean, like, you know, it's a, uh, we, we had a lot of beginners mistakes. Uh, for one, they decided to, um, they decided to shorten the course because there wasn't enough snow that year, which ended up being a good thing for me. Um, meant that the first 20 K was cut off. So we started almost near the top. So it was just about like a whole downhill, which was great for someone my size. And then, Uh, but we booked our hotel in what we thought was the start and it ended up being 20 K away. So, okay. you know, little things like that. And then um, the water bottle that David, you know, we had to get water bottles that a uh, water bottle holder that we would be able to take. And David got one that was a little small and it was cold that morning. And so he turned his water bottle upside down. And when the race started, he lost his water bottle in the first hundred meters and just bumped so hard that the last climb he was just walking up. Um, so he struggled, but at, at the same time, I had a great time um, and I skied pretty well. So I had a great experience. Uh, I don't think David's done a ski classic since that might be why, but you know, there's <laughs> always time for him. He, he doesn't strike me actually as much as like a double pull guy either. I mean, cause he's, he's a good uphill runner and everything, but which I, I shouldn't make that kind of judgment, I think, because like you never really know who's going to be a strong double puller either. But I don't know, maybe. I, yeah, like that's interesting. Um, but that was back in 2017. So how did you get to where you are now? Yeah. And then in the last uh, year, as Rosie and I were kind of looking into the Olympics and um, post Olympics and, you know, figuring out hmm, what do we want to do with the rest of our life? Um, and so we just started playing around with this idea, throwing it back and forth of what if we join a ski classics team? And, um, you know, we would, we originally were like, Oh, we should join. It'd be really interesting to join like a Norwegian one because they have a lot of knowledge. And, um, <clears throat> and then, I mean, Rosie's seasons in the last couple of years kind of have spoken or speak for themselves and she's progressed so well that it's like, okay, I mean, I, I think the ski classics is great, but the world cup is um, still the pinnacle of cross country skiing. And right. so for her to make the change when she's undoubtedly at the peak of her career is a little tough. So um, we started looking into other, um, other options, uh, making sure that, you know, she's, she's the superstar. So I'm, I'm just tagging along. Um, <laughs> but uh, finding a team that would, um appreciate me and my skills and the coincidentally the world cup season last year finished a week early because of the war in ukraine and um because of that they didn't finish the last weekend in russia and that left uh, opportunity for anybody who wanted to from the world cup uh after the home and colon to go and race i think or maybe it was it was balloon but uh, after the last World Cups to go and um, race the Norwegian Berka by Right. And so the team that Rosie and so it ended up being Rosie and then our other teammates, Scott Patterson and Rosie Krakowski, who raced for this Italian team 
and Rosie did really well. And Scott and uh, Frank's had, or Rosie Frankowski had a great time as well. Maybe um, it definitely was a tough race. Uh, Rosie decided to go with kick wax and all the best girls were on double pole skis and double pulling you do have to train for. So um, yeah. it was definitely a bit of a struggle for them, but they had a lot of fun with the Italian group and it kind of just lined up. We, we asked the team Trentino if they were interested and they were, and um, yeah, I, that's kind of how it happened. Yeah. I was going to say the partnership you have with them, it's sort of grown with some of those other athletes, but who sort of initiated that? Was that just like a cold email that you sent or uh, if you guys have, as, as have, uh, has Rosie done uh, the Birkin before? I thought maybe she had done it or someone else. I feel like us skiers have done those either one of those races in the last couple of years, but I guess, yeah. How, how did you initiate that relationship with them specifically? That for the, for before the Burke Gabina Rennet, um, Rosie just, yeah, messaged as many teams as she could and yeah. asked like, what, what are you guys like, uh, what, what can you, how much support can you guys give us uh, at this least, you know, it's yeah. a week or two before. So, um, yeah, just kind of cold calling and they were super, super receptive. Um, there were a lot of coincidences that just kind of played out part of the deal with the ski classics. Um, when the Russians weren't allowed to come and race, they opened up extra spots. And so that allowed the Americans to take those spots. So um, a lot of kind of weird, weird happenings that kind of made it all click together. Um, and then as for me, I just, you know, we, we stayed in touch and, um, yeah, I had a few phone calls with, with, uh, Bruno De Bertolis, the coach for the team. And then, uh, also with, uh, Petter Eliasson, who is, uh, his wife went to UAF. So we kind of, um, had a connection the last, uh, couple of years, especially David, David's pretty close with Petter. And so, um, called him up and stuff or asked what he thought. And he actually raced, uh, the Marcia Longa with this team Trentino last year. So he's like, they're a great group of guys and I think you're gonna have a lot of fun. Um, yeah. And at that point, were you already like, um, this is kind of what I'm going to try and do next year too. Or did you, did you come to that decision more after the race? Like, cause I, I mean, it's gotta be a huge transition for you just to be like thinking Olympic qualifying world cup stuff to full-time ski classics. I mean, how did that decision kind of play out? What was the calculus behind it? Yeah, I mean, or are you really if, there yet? Either it's like, hey, if a World Cup opportunity comes, I'm going to still take it. I mean, it's definitely it's hard to have the idea in my head of um, never pushing towards a World Cup is difficult, but I think it's somewhat realistic um, that you know this next crew of guys are really really fast, and you have to be on your game to stay with them and um, to beat them and not that I'm shying away from that, but it's, it's more just, um, a change of pace and change of scenery. And, um, I think the ski classics is this unexplored, um, uh, unexplored circuit. I, uh, the, the, there w there is one other person who has raced a few of them. It's Holly Brooks, um, also from, uh, Anchorage and she's kind of, uh, talked to me quite a bit about the ski classics and racing for them but uh it's still pretty unexplored to you know designate like i'm gonna do that every single race and so it's just exciting to me um to to do something new and to take my skiing to a different place than kind of just doing the status quo and not i like i've i've loved racing on the super tour but i think oftentimes you can stagnate and um you know, who knows, who knows what will happen from this. I'm excited to see my training has definitely been, uh, not the same, um, <clears throat> not exactly how I would have written it out if I would have written a specific plan because I've had to come back from surgery and, um, it took me a while to get into double pulling, which, um, is uh, was definitely pretty frustrating. It was definitely gnawing at the bit to just get started, but I didn't start double pulling like focused until July. And so the jury's out whether 
Um, I'm going to have the ability to stay with these guys, but I'm willing to to see. And I'm hoping I'm optimistic that, you know, as I continue racing throughout the season, it's kind of just going to, it's going to uh, line up. It's going to come. I'm going to get faster and I'm going to start to understand the race circuit a little bit more. Yeah. I'm curious on the training side, like what, because you've excelled in mass starts and sprints and it seems like you might have like a really good um, makeup for ski classics in that way where you have to be able to go long, but you got to be, be finishing high intensity and all that stuff. So, I mean, did, was that part of it too, where you're like, maybe I could you know, like be good at this because of that? Like, and, and how have you, I guess, developed your training plan to kind of hone in on those strengths, but also work on your weaknesses? Like, like what can you tell us about the specifics there? Yeah. Um, going back to, your first part of the question, I definitely feel like it suits me, um, especially a bigger stature guy. There's definitely a broad range of uh, body types, which is really cool to see. You have little guys who, you know, have to make it on the climbs and you have big guys yeah. like me who need to um, suffer through the climbs, but make it to the finish for a good sprint. Um, so I, going back to the Marshalanga, which ends in a 3k finish like uphill finish which is pretty tough um i a lot of the other races can align align to my uh strengths so um in terms of my weaknesses it's so hard to say i mean grant like you have to take everything i say with a grain of salt because i haven't raced most of these circuits so i haven't raced these races and i'm trying like the the best um data that i can find is through strava going uh to you know look at all the races that have been raced i take the data and i put it on like a, a gradient profile and kind of see okay what's the average gradient how long are these climbs um and how can i train towards that i think the climbing is going to be really important uh because that's probably going to be my weakness but i i just can't say because i um when we did the marshall longa we actually got dropped in the overspeed because they were going unreasonably fast like you know double pulling 35 miles an hour so i can't remember but it was just like and like yeah. i'm going all out sprint and getting past and so um it's just kind of we're just gonna have to wait and see and hope that um i've been doing a lot of climbing sessions in Park City, uh, I've been using more flat train because where I figured altitude and uh, so you can still work the heart at the same time as doing flat stuff. Um, so it's kind of just uh, feeling my way around and um, trying to do the best day to day. Yeah. And there's some pretty, I've listened to a few of the Ski Classics podcasts too, where you hear the training of some of these guys and like, there's some of them who are totally fine with like four to six hour double pull sessions, like 11 months of the year, you know, five, six days. You're like, wow, really? Is that like longevity wise? You just, your elbows hurt just like thinking about it. Kind mm -hmm. of. And part of me thinks like that's unnecessary. Like you could build fitness and have good double pull endurance. And then part of me is like, well, maybe double pull. Like it's literally the same thing as like cycling or running. It's like, it's a very specific mode. So the double pole champions are really just double pulling a bunch. Um, but there is, there's at least a couple who, you know, will throw in skate sessions here or there, or they have different lower volume things. But I was wondering if that's kind of intimidating to you, or if you've kind of like tried to grab some of that and make your own sort of mixture of this is what I think I need. Like what, what's your, what's your like weekly hours like now? Is that, and what's kind of the distribution for you? Yeah, that's uh, back to where is it overwhelming to look at? I definitely made the mistake of looking at some of the guys and looking at the hours that they were pulling. And the, yeah, you no, know, there's one guy who's doing three hours every single day, basically the exact same loop. And I, I, I tried that for a little bit. And then I was like, you know what? This isn't me. Um, I need to, uh, I need to like remember that I know how to train. I don't need to try to copy 
um, copy them. So like I said, the jury's still out whether that's going to work. Um, but yeah, so at the, at the start, when I started getting into being able to double pull, um, I started trying to do three hour sessions and just got pretty wiped. And then I came back and decided if I can be consistent and double pull every day, um, that was kind of my main, my core is just, you know, make sure that I have a really quality two hour plus double pull. Um, rarely do I go to four hours, but, um, at least like two hour plus and Anchorage, we, where Rosie and I live, we live in the hills in the, in the mountains. So, uh, it's a lot of, uh, climbing. And so, within these workouts, it's, if I, it's a distance workout, it's still pretty strength intensive because I'm double pulling. I, I, I also took the ratchets off my roller skis to force, force myself to, um, double pull even when I was struggling, just, you know, it, it's sure. a lot of it. And my theory is that it's mental, um, to just, you know, how do I get over this hill? How do I start this race knowing that I, there's no backup plan? There's yeah. no wax on my feet. I can't, walk up a hill i mean you can walk but it's gonna be really slow so right. um getting getting used to just you know there's there's i've, I've got skate skis on my feet and i'm gonna have to double every single hill and and then as for the workouts like it's relying on my traditional knowledge of uh intervals a balance of level three level four and speeds um nothing too complicated my other theory that I'm hoping is, is correct is that sometimes these, you notice it with a lot of like these trends within, or yeah, you notice it within these, these trends that you see one guy in the world cup doing something crazy and then everybody follows. And right. I'm my, one of my theories is that everyone's following one guy who, you know, succeeded last year and, I don't believe that that's like, that's not going to be the thing that makes it, makes it for them. Like whether it's like that guy probably just, you know, there's so many other variables that, that go into the training and racing. So um, I'm doing my best to just be confident with what I'm doing and um, hopefully the results will, will come. Now, the the diehard cedar skier podcast fans would be very disappointed that you didn't give us very many specific numbers there but i'm not gonna like dig and prod like they probably want me to but i'm curious for you fitness wise going into race confidence um i feel like every athlete sort of has a thing that they can lean into that gives them confidence when they're in the pack um up in the front like whether it's hey i trust my aerobic I, i'm the most aerobically strong athlete in this field or i trust my finishing kick or, you know, I, I trust that I'm the most efficient of the strikes technique. Like, what is it for you that you feel like you really, you know, when you are the rookie out there and there's all these legends of the sport and it's kind of a new thing for you that you're going to mentally hone in on and go, I belong here because of this. Mm. <clears throat> um, I think that it's going to be my tactical awareness. Um, it's definitely, uh, I, I don't know how my fitness and my, uh, like the first couple weekends will, will tell me a lot about how I stack up in that way, but I am confident in my tactical abilities. I think that's gotten me really far in the last few years, understanding other, how other people race, um, Granted, in the U.S., we have this thing we don't we don't prize marathons like they do in Europe. Um, right. So when we have U.S. nationals, the 50k, it seemed or the 30k for women. Um, now I guess the 42k. Um, it seems like for a lot of people, the goal is just to finish and cross the line. And I I. I soon realized that people were kind of just zoning out in for, for these major marathons and um, coming, like coming towards them, they would dread them. And um, I don't feel that way at all. Uh, the way it, my experience is, is, if I'm racing in a pack, granted, it's a very different story if 
you're off the back because those are hard. Those are really hard races. You gotta, you know, do something else with your mind. You gotta appreciate the scenery or something. But if you're in the pack, which these races are pack races for the most part, um, you know, playing games throughout the whole time, you know, like where can I save energy here? Where can I practice coming around this guy here? Um, learning about the other guy's skis, learning about, um, you know, feeling the other people's strengths and listening to the breathing, whatever it is. I think that's where my strength is. I think that I can be the best in that. I don't know how I'm going to compare it to anything else. So, um, but when I'm, if I'm in that pack, I, I'm going to be um, confident that, you know, if, if a tactical decision needs to be made, like I'm going to be there, I'm going to be ready for it. And, um, and, yeah and, and then at the same time the mental aspects um it, they're long races they're two to four hours um so you got to be grounded in some way you got to be uh you you can't be overly focused you can't be hyper aware because that's going to drain you at the same time but you got to be um aware just generally aware and grounded for that whole time so that's a lot of what i've been practicing even away from sport is trying to be grounded and trying to be appreciative of where I am and um, not get caught up in uh, too much other than that. And I, this is a little bit hardcore double pole nerd question here, but you mentioned that you've been working to understand the different techniques for various parts of the course, steep hills, flats, downhills, gradual hill, uphills, stuff like that. Um, and I'm curious, like, what sort of form elements, mental cues could you share for those? Because I think even for, yeah, I guess dedicated Nordic skiers, they just think of the double pole and they don't, they don't really, they probably never have been in a situation where those minute changes are going to be massive difference makers. Like they are in the ski classics, you know, and taking advantage of a fast flat. Like it sounds like you had an experience where everyone was just cruising and it's like, how are people going this fast? Like, I thought I knew how to double pull. I don't know if that was kind of an experience for you, but yeah. How are, yeah. how are you? Um, what are those things and who's kind of helping you coach you on it? Uh, who's Yeah. <clears throat> I, I wish I had a better answer other than I'm doing a lot of coaching myself. Um, and I have the convenient support of one of the best skiers in the world in Rosie. Uh, but granted, she's not a double pool expert. And, um, but yeah, we can bounce ideas off of each other and I can ask, okay, this does make sense. And she actually gave me one, uh, the last couple months that I've been using. Um, I, you can, you can see a lot of, um, old footage, but I mean, even now, a lot of double pullers in sprints in particularly, but the focus is to try to get as far up on your toes as possible. Um, the toes are the centerpiece. You know, if you can get on your toes and you can put power, I think the reality is that, you know, getting on your toes is kind of the, the, um, you know, backswing of, of, you know, it's that what comes after the important part. So what I've been thinking about is coming off my heels, using that as the impulse. Um, and uh, that way it, it, it has more balance to the um, double pole. So, I mean, that's just one example of kind of one of the cues that I've, cues that I've been using lately. But um, when I started getting more into double pulling in the last few years, uh, it's, it's just, I think, a lot about rhythm and uh, just maintaining a solid rhythm and um, I don't know I, I do a lot of counting when I'm skiing so just count to 20 and uh, I don't need to do many more cues than that uh, and then the rhythm is going to change when you're going up a steep climb versus an overspeed and you want to use a few other cues uh, like I mentioned with the, like coming off my heels mostly for overspeed, but uh, you see a lot of the guys, you know, switching legs, kind of doing this lunge type thing. Um, so in my training, I'm kind of deciding like, okay, is, is this make sense? Um, are they just doing it because someone else is doing it? That kind of, that kind of stuff that the more time you spend double pulling, the more you learn. And I've just tried to spend as much time as I can double pulling and try to pick up these, 
these little things that I see these guys doing and trying to differentiate between uh, is this actually going to make me faster or am I doing it just because I'm jumping on the bad wagon? So that's kind of what my thought process is. It is interesting how some things, elements, whether like a, a uphill, going up a steep uphill, if you just do it a lot and make yourself double pull up steep uphills all the time, like your body sometimes does try to find that most efficient way that works for your, you know, body type too, the length of your arms, your torso. I think that that all impacts those angles. Even if some study says this is what it should be, or some skier has, this is what it should be. Um, I'm like a pretty notoriously terrible waxers. So like what you talked about, how feeling kind of, um, exposed when you go into a race, like on skate skis, like this is my only chance I've like, I kind of did that many times in marathon races around the Midwest kind of by force, you know, but it's like interesting how that mental, because of that, that mental aspect has been kind of solidified that like, oh yeah, worst case scenario, I'll just double pull it. And there's been some miserable moments in that, but it's kind of interesting how like, just going for it and just putting yourself in those situations, you do learn some things, but also man, like watching pro skiers at the next level or ski classics guys have been doing it for a long time. I can imagine that that would be just a tremendous catalyst for all of these topics. And so I'm curious, like if you had training camps, even now with Robinson 13, I know you talked about, you guys are going to be in toll block, right. For the season. So uh, like what sort of work with your team, has been happening so far if any or what's kind of in the works for that yeah so far we um they have had a few training camps unfortunately we haven't been able to make it over to italy yet uh to join them but we've been on a whatsapp so we get to see all the pictures and be jealous of them skiing around the dolomites but uh when we get to tolok uh, which is where we're gonna have our home base then uh, Rosie will go to the World Cup for three weeks and I'll have an opportunity to jump in and join a training camp with Robinson Trentino in uh, depending on where the snow is. So hopefully there's a good snow season and um, there's mention of like Lavigno and uh, a few other places. So kind of like, you know, what you would dream of when you think of Italy, uh, which I'm very excited about. And uh that we've been getting, you know, at these camps that they are, they've been doing, they've been sending pictures and videos and I've been watching some of my teammates and um, future teammates. And it seems like they've been having a great training season and I'm really excited to, to jump in with them. And um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to get the best out of my, out of the team and hopefully um, we'll, you know, get, get stronger and better. Uh, There's a few, there's a few Norwegians on the team and then a few Italians and um, yeah, time will tell if I'm sure we'll, we'll bond well, but um, I think, you know, it's key classics. Uh, it takes a team to be successful. So uh, we're going to, I'm going to make sure that we have a, a strong team. Yeah. And it seems like if you follow the sport for a long time, it seems like ski classics sort of where like world cup once, once people are done with their world cup career, they might do a twilight stage or chapter. And now there's younger athletes going right to it, you know, and it, and it's becoming much more specialized. Like with it, if you're not doing the Anders Auckland, like crazy five hours a day stuff, like good luck. Um, And so I'm curious, like what your opinion is on that in terms of just like the, the difference in caliber of athlete between world cup and ski classics, you know, if someone were to ask you, uh, I know you mentioned like world cup is still the pinnacle. I don't think anyone would debate you against that, but I almost wonder if it's, uh, it's like ski classics has become an equal caliber athlete, just doing such a different, I don't know, skew skewed version of skiing compared to world cup that it's hard to compare, you know, is that, is that sort of how you see it or, or, or could like, Alexander Bolshinov just hop into ski classics and win by like a minute, you know? Yeah. Uh, there, I mean, there's one ski classic that probably out is an outlier. There's one that, uh, hasn't been won without kick wax yet. So that's the one outlier where I'm sure a world cup athlete can come in and dominate that. Um, which was, which happened last year with, uh, Nyinget and, and so I'm sure Bolshinov decided to jump into that one. There's no doubt. As for the others, I mean, 
it's it's much more in line with um cycling where uh it's cycling you have your your classics you have your tours you have your time trials you have you know all these specialists and uh dump pulling is a specialist sport and so sometimes you know you have these random guys who um in cycling go off the front and you know beat the sprint group but most of the time it's those guys who know how to sprint um these are like you're you know in the tour the sprint stages that's what double pole racing is and so i don't think uh would just walk away with these races um or any other guy and then at the same time like if you're not in the top top tier of the world cup you definitely will struggle um you can't just assume like oh i'm i'm fit um so i can i can be competitive with these guys like you need to be fit and you need to be a good double puller uh you can't be you can't be one or the other um so uh yeah i i'm curious like logistics wise this transition in your career you know i know that nordic skiing it's hard to like make it you know and, and for a lot of people just with financially sponsors all that stuff i mean what can you speak to the logistical barriers or maybe lack of barriers that have enabled you to make this like the right step for you and with rosie too you know um yeah what what and, and what kind of details can you tell us about the support you're getting either from the ski classics teams or your brands for doing this Yeah, um, I don't think I'm going to give you the answer that you want about how much I'm getting from the ski classics teams. Um, I wish it, it was uh, millions of dollars or thousands of dollars, but it's cross-country skiing and it's, a, um, for lack of a better term, a niche sport. <laughs> um, but people are fanatical about it and that's what matters. Um, but as far as financial sport, I mean, I was... well supported when I was a younger skier. Uh, the odd thing when my, my support dried up for some reason after I made the Olympics, um, I don't quite know why, uh, whether it was just a coincidence or not, but, um, going into this year, there's like the caveat that I'm, we're, I'm very fortunate that Rosie's on the world cup and, um, she's, you know, the U S team is well supported at this stage of the uh, progression. And so, Um, we, we definitely have cut some corners on some things, um, to try to make it work. Um, but yeah, you know, finding a place in Europe is, was difficult. We worked through as many connections as we could to find an affordable place. And we were able to find a relatively affordable place and then, um, leasing a car and, right. um, it's money, but at the same time. Yeah. And, and at the same time, I, so post uh, Olympics, I decided to um, balance my ski racing. I felt like it was a little bit, uh, it, it was becoming a little bit wobbly in terms of uh, my life balance. And so I partnered that with a part-time job as an engineer. So I'm going to be doing that in Europe as well. Um, it's going to, so yeah, working remote and I think it's going to, um, be a really great balance when over there i'm not going to get you know too sucked into the you know skiing 24 7 sure. and um it's going to help out financially so in terms of i i wish it could all come from skiing but you know you you got to make it work when you can and you know if if i i get the moonshot and i start winning these races then um if you if you are very successful in ski classics you can definitely make a career but right. Uh, yeah, yeah. I need to, I need to see where I stack up first. Yeah. Some of my friends always talk about how like ski classics almost has the whole marketing TV viewing experience down a way, way better than world cup. So who knows, like maybe you'll start to be approached even more, um, sponsors exactly. and all that stuff. Uh, and I'm curious, like this whole transition, Americans haven't gone and done what you're doing. Why do you think that is? And do you think people are going to follow you and maybe do this, you know, if they're, especially I mean, well, yeah, I'll, I'll just let you answer that. I won't add, add any, any extra. <laughs> I hope it, I hope that people look at it at least. I, I mean, I, I've got so much positive feedback. Um, 
you know, when you're in this bubble in the US, oftentimes it's, you know, we're competing against each other for these spots um, on the World Cup and World Champs and the Olympics. And so, uh, though we try our best to be collaborative, it sometimes it's like me against them or them against me. And um, since I joined, like everybody, you know, at this camp, I've seen a lot of people from all over the country and every single person has been so excited and so encouraging um and they they want me to succeed and that's really really exciting and motivating um and i hope that the lessons that we take you know even finding a place in europe uh living there you know as a european would do which i think in terms of longevity while skiing is pretty important um i think all these lessons that i hope we can take we can pass on and uh I mean, I think Ski Classics is only moving forward. So I think it's going to become a bigger and bigger thing. And this next generation of American skiers is, um, I mean, we're getting quite a bit of depth. So if these guys want to try something new, like I, I think going, doing the same thing that David and I did, like throwing a race here or there, and like these are incredible places, beautiful places. You can get away with, you know, not, making it affordable like you you can make it affordable right and so just give it a shot and see where you land and if anyone's interested message me because i hope to have a little bit more uh guidance as i go on well and it seems like when you look at the european club system model like the ski classics exists kind of at the higher end of i guess one of the cradle to the grave um on that continuum uh when i went to oslo in 2019 i stayed with lins uh linsky the, the club there in oslo and it was you know cool to see seven-year-olds through 65 year olds and they're all skiing and on their wednesday practices and then the 65 year old group they had a whole a whole bus people going to the birkin you know like together so there was like 65 of them you know and i guess it was a wide age range you know everyone from 15 all the way through probably 70 and I feel like in America, I mean, we have like the Berkey and we have some of these other things, but you don't see a lot of clubs that would like offer all, uh, some a ski classic option, obviously at all. And I'm wondering if you think that's something we almost kind of need or could look into, you know, would it have an effect on the growth of the sport as a whole to have it? It, it seems like, I mean, the obvious reason of maybe it not being there is, well, there's no ski classic in North America. But, I mean, you're going to have to travel, get on a plane and fly these places anyway. It seems like it'd be sweet if APU had a, had a crew of five or six athletes and then they just did the final six races. You know, you could if you went over in March, you could hit Vassalopit, Birkin, the last two. Like, there's a string of them, you know, you wouldn't hardly have to travel at all between Norway and Finland. I've always thought that's, like, something a club should do. Uh, there just hasn't been the interest. But I'm I'm interested, like, what you think of you know, the impact that having ski classics be kind of a part of the club system could have, if, if any, or if it's something APU's talked about, like, I don't know if Eric Flora and you guys have ever discussed that. No, uh, I don't think it is a common discussion. I, I think the American pipeline is pretty specific towards world cup and Olympics. Um, so it's, it's definitely, it would take a, it definitely take a shift. Um, yeah. But I, I think at the same time, maybe starting a little bit closer and there are opportunities within the U.S. to um, showcase some of these uh, types of racing. And we don't we, we choose not to do that. I, I would love if the Ski Classics were to have a race over here, because I think that would be an eye opener to Americans. Um, yeah. But yeah, that that might that might take some work, but I, I'm looking forward to meeting everybody in the ski classics and um, yeah, hopefully they are interested in getting more Americans involved. Um, and I'd love to talk with them about ideas because there's, there's definitely a lot of hurdles. I mean, even getting a visa, it's something that we're, we're still working on. So um, that's not, uh, it's, it's not an, an easy intro as an American. So, um, I think starting smaller and just, you know, we can do some 
I think there should be a few more, or there should be roller ski races, and then double pole roller ski races, and then um, hopefully some double pole marathons. And I, I don't know, it it's tricky because you know America's market isn't isn't too large to incorporate all of this. So um, I have a feeling that uh, if if the U.S. wants a team, it's gonna be you know. one's uh, one group and um it's gonna start out in the grassroots level and um just being on the tour and not focusing too much on like the high end but um i think that's totally reasonable and i think that uh, i hope that this is kind of like an intro into piquing people's interest because i definitely got a lot of feedback i mean even coincidentally like i i got a message from someone who didn't even know i was pursuing this asking if Uh, ski classics team was something that having known that I had done a ski classic or a few ski classics before like is this a thing that Americans uh, would be interested in I start putting it all together Uh, just a few more questions. I appreciate your time so much. It's been really fun. And these are kind of more big, broad, deep questions. So um, the first one is, what are your goals in this next chapter of your career? You know, you, you talked about kind of coming into the World Cup with, I want to be the best skier of all time. Like, how does this chapter fit in with that? Yeah. Um, for starters, I think I've become a little bit more realistic with age. Uh, I understand that, you know, it's really hard to be the best here in the world. Um, and I'm glad I wasn't told that at age 10 because I wouldn't have tried. Uh, and I, I, like, that doesn't mean that the spark hasn't come out, like hasn't, hasn't gotten out of my eyes, but like, I definitely know that this might be really challenging there might be some races that I'm off the back, but um, to say a specific result is really, really difficult. I'd love to be top 30 in every race. Uh, I don't even know if that's possible, um, but I I want to ski in these packs and I want to progress through the season and absorb these races. Have the, I think one of my training, another training philosophy is like have enough double pulling background. So every single race I absorb rather than it um, uh, like blows me out for the next weekend. And so if I can absorb every race, I can keep improving. Uh, if I can do that, the season's going to, it's going to roll well. If I, if, if, if I'm not there, then that's when you really start to suffer too much time off the back. It's going to be hard, but at the same time, it's, you know, you can still find these little packs here and there and, Um, appreciating the guys that you're around and knowing that every single guy is working really, really hard to get to the finish line as fast as they can. So um, I'm going to be there with them. Where, where do you see yourself as a skier and or person or both, I guess, in five years, 10 years, 15 years, are you going to be in Anders Auckland? Like, do I have to say 25 years from now? <laughs> no, I can, I can, I can say that I'm not going to be in Anders Auckland. Um, I mean, five years from now, I'm going to make an assumption that I'm not going to be, you know, winning every other race on the, on the ski classics. And I think that um, in the U S it gets exponentially harder. We have a, a culture to drive towards um, economic uh, viability and, I think that's going to be the overwhelming factor is like, okay, it's time to settle down and uh, start to find a real life. Um, I can't do this forever. And um, so five years from now, I'm probably going to be, um, I'm hoping to be doing something I'm passionate about. And I'm going to hope that I'm still training and, and um, fit and healthy and, if I want to race, I want to race. If I don't, then I'm okay with that too. And finally, what, what is your why and how has it evolved? If at all. Uh, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> the why originally, right. Was, um, cause I thought I could be the best in the world. Like that's why I woke up every morning and every single day I would, Ask every single decision I would make, 
um, which speaks a lot about me is like, how would this impact my skiing? Um, and I'm talking about every single decision. And now the why has changed to like, how can I be mentally healthy, mentally fit and physically healthy and physically fit? Um, and if, if, if I can do that, then I think things come. If I, if I don't do that, then that's the when the results start to, to hurt. Um, and yeah, I, I don't need to overcomplicate it other than just, you know, be mentally healthy and physically healthy. Um, is there any other like questions I should have asked you, you know, that I didn't, uh, related to all this stuff or, or other thoughts that you have? I know I, I always like to do that just to kind of, if I didn't cover something, it's, it's your podcast too, you know, now that you've joined <laughs> us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, like I said, take everything I said with a grain of salt because, you know, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm as, almost as knowledgeable as you are. You're probably more knowledgeable. Um, I, I doubt it. No. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I think that, I'm excited to see where this goes and I appreciate the enthusiasm that I've received and I hope people follow me as I go about it and um, I hope that they're proud of what I'm able to accomplish. I'm looking like I'm gonna get it, you probably don't get it I come in your house with a microphone looking like I'm about to set up a show in your kitchen I'm out of my mind but I feel like I'm in it If I never make it, don't make any difference, I'm still gonna kill it you know what the deal is. Thank you for joining us on this edition of the Cedar Skier Podcast We hope you enjoyed the interview with Tyler Cornfield And if you enjoyed this show and want to check out some other ones Go to cedarskier.com Or you can search the Cedar Skier Podcast It's on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts Wherever you get your podcasts Thank you. Keep on striving. Keep on skiing.